And we're in Galatians chapter 4. We're on part 3 of our message on the importance of the virgin birth. And although this has been one of those studies, it's kind of branching out a little bit into areas of further study about Christ. And it's not just alone about the virgin birth, but that's where our text sort of starts, or it starts with the the incarnation is really the term theologically that we talk about that God put on flesh. And we're going to pick, up, pick the text up in Galatians chapter 4 and read these two verses. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that the son was given. He came to this earth, walked among us, and he's our savior. And we ask tonight that Jesus might be lifted up out of these texts. We might see him for who he really is. And we might love him and appreciate him more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We looked at these, uh, these are the points, the major points. We looked at the reality of the virgin birth. That was our part one message. And then last week we were in the point two, uh, like two weeks ago now, the results of the virgin birth and the results being the fact that uh, he was both man and God, and that's going to be. We're going to look at that a little further, and then eventually, maybe another study or two, we'll get into the reasons for the virgin birth, and it's really, really wrapped up in the idea of redemption and what that's all about. But we looked at last time point A under uh, heading two there, which was he was fully man, and remember we looked at the various texts that, and that's really what that deals with. And tonight we're going to look at he was fully God. And in the last time we looked at made of a woman, made under the law. And that's a reference to the humanity of Christ, that he was fully man. And we looked at various things like he thirsted, he was weary, he slept, right? Uh, he experienced joy, he prayed, he had very many different human things that we did, all of the things that we do. And the Bible says he's such a high priest, right? He has, been, he has felt every infirmity, every trial, every temptation that is common to us because he was fully man. He understood that. And yet different in that he was also fully God and he was without sin. And that's really important. And that's really part of that uh, miracle of the virgin conception, the virgin birth as it's often called, uh, that God who is holy would come into our world and walk among unholy parts of his creation right and he would do that redeeming us from the curse of the law and sin the curse of sin and the law anyways tonight we're going to look at this idea of god sent forth his son and that's the deity of christ or the divinity of christ he was fully god as much as he was fully man and in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we looked at this in a message previous. We looked at this prophecy from the book of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born. That's the humanity of Christ. Unto us a son is given. That's the deity or the eternality of the son when he was given at Bethlehem's manger. Really given in the virgin's womb. And then later here. And you notice that part of the description of his name it says his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god 
Very clear indication that the Messiah would be God. Not just a grand political leader who would lead the nation back to a reformation of some sort or freedom from an occupational government that's over them, but rather he would be God. That's according to Isaiah. And then if you don't believe that, he follows it up with everlasting father. In the Hebrew, it means father of everlasting or father of eternity. By definition, the one who fathered eternity would have to be outside eternity, and that's God. So that's the description there of that. And what we want to look at tonight, and I don't know how far we'll, <coughs> we'll get in things, but we have uh, often, you know, we, we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and we say, where is evidence within the scriptures and the testimony of others that show that he indeed was God? Not just a man who was a good man, let's say, and I, I think it was C.S. Lewis who first argued um, the idea that he would not be a good man if he claimed to be God, and he wasn't, right? He would be a liar. Um, and later he said, and that's in that mere Christianity, and then later um, it was uh, picked up, uh, and my name is, is losing there, in the... Oh, another apologist in the, from the 80s. And, uh, never mind. Anyways, C.S. Lewis. I can remember C.S. Lewis tonight. But he talks about he's either a liar, and he, if he says he's God and he's not God, or he's a crazy man, a lunatic, or he indeed is Lord, right? And does the scripture show us that he is God? And that's where we go to that. Often the... Um, what we would call the perfections of God are demonstrated in these three words that are used to describe God. The word uh, or prefix omni meaning all, and you have omnipresent, or in other words, always present, all right? And then omnipotent, the root word there, potent, right? Which is where we get power. So we have all powerful. And then you have omniscient, and that deals with the mind, right? And so he's all-knowing. And we find that the Bible clearly teaches throughout the scriptures that God is always present, he's always powerful, and he's all-knowing. And those areas uh, define who God is and in the sense that he is God. We are not that way. I'm not that way. Uh, I don't, I can't be everywhere present. Sometimes I wish I could because, you know, you got some task over here and some task over there and this end and that end and you just one person, right? But not for God. That's why he can work in your life and he can work in my life and he can work in the almost like think this year they're going to hit 7.9 billion people on the face of the earth. Estimated. I don't know who sits down and counts all those. You wouldn't be able to do it in your lifetime. But, uh, we know that he is able to work in everybody's heart and life all at the same time. He's omnipotent and he's all-knowing. He knows what I'm thinking, even when my face betrays me as somebody that might be happy, maybe I'm not. And he knows those things. He knows the doubts we have. He knows the fears we have. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We're going to look at that. Is there indication that Christ is omnipresent? Now, I preface this by saying this. Part of the, the doctrine that in, unfolds in the incarnation, or the putting on of flesh, is that Jesus gave up the use of his perfections as God to the will of the Father. 
So Jesus could not, when he was here on earth and he gave up the will of his own to his father, he didn't always, uh, could not always be in, like, you know, he he didn't always know everything. Um, As a baby, he would have had to have learned from a toddler on up. He would have learned how to walk, all those different things. Grab this here. He would have had to learn those basic things that everybody would have had to learn and going through that. And yet, by the will of God, the will of the Father, he could also know things that other people couldn't and all that. But with the idea of the eternality of Christ or the deity of Christ, he's God, and he did have those attributes or those perfections of omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience. Starting with omnipresence. There's an interesting phrase that's found in John chapter 3 in the dialogue with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus is a teacher in Israel, a ruler. He's one of the Pharisees, and he comes to Jesus by night, and he's got some deep questions. And he knows Jesus is, like, sent from God. He says that. So no man could do the miracles you do unless God was with him or sent him. And I think Nicodemus is exploring the idea, is this the Messiah? And look at the claim that Jesus makes. He says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. He's referring to himself. That is the son of man who is in heaven. Do you see the use there of the tenses? He who came down from heaven, that's past tense. It's actually past perfect tense. And then he who is in heaven, that's present tense. It's a funny way of saying something. But really what Jesus is saying is that he was here on earth and had come down to earth. And the title Son of Man was referring directly to himself. And yet he's also in heaven. How could he be in heaven and in earth at the same time? Because he's God. And it's interesting, Nicodemus doesn't rebuke him for saying that. Nicodemus is listening. And of course Jesus goes on to tell him about the new birth, right? And to tell him... Um, well, that God sent his, his son. And you have John 3.16 in that, right after that, you know, three verses down, and the wonderful truth. But preceding that, Jesus lays it out in saying that he is somehow omnipresent. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am, I am there in the midst of them. And we often quote that verse uh, referring to the communion of uh, the saints, right? As we gather together, whether it be one or two or three or whatever, Jesus is with us. And how is it that Jesus could be with us? And when he's saying this, this was when he was here on earth. He was saying that because he indeed was at least making the claim that he was omnipresent. And again, through the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit... Uh, that is indeed true. The doctrine of uh, what they call spiration, I guess, is the, the theological term of the Holy Spirit's <clears throat> generation of, and, and he is a person, but uh, through the Father and through the Son, specifically, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us as God the Holy Spirit comes through the Father and the Son. And again, omnipresence and the spirit of god was just as much at work in that day as he is today somewhat differently but he is at work 
Later, Jesus says, I'll send another comforter, right? He's referring to the Holy Spirit And um, in that. How about, um, that was his omnipresence, and I could do more there, but um, um, Matthew 28, 20. He says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, again, that's important because Jesus, in his commission to his disciples, who would go out from there, he says, I'm going to be with you. And yet, just a few days from then, they would see him ascending into heaven. How is it that Jesus could go to heaven and yet still be with his disciples and be with all his followers, even today, even to the end of the age? That means the end of time and beyond And I can say that because he is God and he is, he inhabits eternity and he can make that statement. He is omnipresent. How about omnipotent? And that word omnipotent, all powerful. Again, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We find that he indeed is the one who has all authority power or all authority and by definition that would have to be god because it doesn't say um, i have all authority except he has all authority period hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 also um, expresses that who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The position of the Son today is at the right hand of, of God. And he is God, but he sits in the honored position in that way um, and to the right as it's designated there. But he, it says, who is the brightness of his glory. You want to see the glory of God? You look to Christ. He is fully God. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. In Matthew chapter 4, we find not only is he in, like he's all powerful in that way, but even more specifically, he has power over disease. That's one thing I don't have power over. Uh, as I mentioned, I had family this week that were sick, and I wish I could have just said, don't be sick, and you're not sick, but that's not the way it works, right? And sometimes we have to face disease, and yet Jesus had power over disease. Now, I also want to say he didn't cure everybody. We live in a sin-cursed earth, and disease is a natural result of sin in the world, and it brings all the heartache and hurts that come with it, and it is part of that sin-cursed earth that we live in. And that's the short answer. God's answer to that is that he entered into this world. And he suffered. And I don't know if that fully means that there were times when Jesus in the flesh felt the effects of disease. But I would assume so. Because it says he was tempted in all points like we are and yet without sin. There were times probably he was very weak. And he was inflicted with some dreadful thing. And yet it wasn't because of his sin or even in the, the original sin, because it wasn't in him. And yet he felt it. 
Look at Matthew 4.23. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Again, it showed Jesus was different. And I would just say this, ultimately, God is the great healer. He is. And that does not, again, mean he's obliged to always heal. Um, and he doesn't heal based necessarily on how much faith you have or how little faith you have. There are faith healers, so-called, out there that say, if you have enough faith, you will be healed. And I just say this, that even faith healers have funerals, all right, for themselves. <laughs> so that doesn't always work. Sometimes disease and sickness comes simply because we live in this sin-cursed earth and we get those things, whatever they are. Sometimes they're inherited diseases as well, right, that come. And there are times that they're, they're, God allows those things to happen for his glory. That when, when we are weak, he is made strong. And the Bible is very clear on those things. Uh, Paul the Apostle, when he says he had an infirmity in the flesh, and he asks the Lord three times for it to be taken. And the answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, you're going to have it in your flesh, whatever that infirmity is. But my grace is sufficient for you. And in Paul's weakness, Christ was glorified. But he has power over disease. And ultimately, when this old body's put off, there won't be any more diseases. We'll be in the very presence of God for eternity in heaven, and there will be no more sickness, no more dying, no more weird medical spells of this or that, right? No more unexplained things that go on in the human body. It'll be made like it was. Perfect. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 He had power over Satan. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So here Jesus has the power over um, really the most powerful angel, fallen angel that's out there, Satan. We find he had power over demons. When evening had come, this is Matthew 8, 16, says, when evening, evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. He had power over men. John seventeen two, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, as he's praying this, And he's referring to himself. He had authority over men and women and boys and girls. He has authority over nature. Great storm of Matthew 8. It says here, but he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the seas obey him? And if you want the answer to that, he's God. And though the disciples, their, their theology was still forming here. All right? They weren't really sure who Jesus was in, in all his you know, uh, wonder and everything else. And when these miracles would take place, like the light bulb would go on. Who is this man 
that even nature obeys him? Well, the answer is, and it comes from nature, is he's God. Very simple. He has power over sin. 1 John 3, 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. He has power over sin. And there John says he was manifested, he was declared to us, he walked among us, and John is the one who is the, you know, the same author of the Gospel of John, and he is the one that begins with the eternality of Jesus, and he talks about the Word, the Logos, who became flesh. He was manifested to us, and I love that, the way he describes that. He had power over tradition. That's a good one. God has power over tradition. It's a good thing, because otherwise we'd be so steeped in tradition we'd never ever worship god matthew chapter 15 you remember his disciples were eating food and they didn't wash their hands look it says why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread oh boy big no-no you broke the law of man look what it says he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? <laughs> he had the power over tradition. He had power over the Sabbath. For even the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus at times had, remember, he healed on the Sabbath. Uh, and it, it upset the religious leaders. I can't believe he healed somebody on the Sabbath. So he did something good, and yet he's accused of breaking the Sabbath. And he reminds them he's Lord of the Sabbath. You think God is bound by the Sabbath? No, not at all. He had power over the temple. Again, a fixed building, but a building that the Jews held in such high regard that that all of their history was wrapped up in that, you know, work that is there. And it was a place where God had met with the people, although the glory of God had departed. They were still going through the motions of those things. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus is there in the temple, and look what he says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Greater than the temple. God. He had power over death. Luke chapter 7 verse 14. Then he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother. There you have instances of Jesus raising the young man back. Then you have Lazarus. By the way, Lazarus pictures for us the sinner who had been dead for long enough that he was, he was corrupted. His body was decaying. It says, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth from the grave. And I always find that amazing. There are three instances where Jesus raised people from the dead and recorded in the Gospels. And you remember, one is a little girl that had just died. Then you have... 
uh, the widow's son there who had died a few hours, and then you have Lazarus, and it's been a few days. And in all instances, he has power over physical death. He had power over spiritual death, too. John chapter 5, verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And he's referring to those that have died even, that they will hear. And someday Christ will, uh, his voice will boom and the dead will arise. I think of that. He's powerful. He's God. Even the grave does not or cannot be powerful when Christ is there. Uh, John chapter 16. Oh, this is um, his omniscience. We go to omniscience. John 16. He knows all things. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And that's the statement that was made of Christ, that he knew things. And the indication, the proof of that is found also in the other texts. For instance, in John chapter 2, in verse 23, we see the fickleness of the crowd. There's a crowd there, and Jesus looks out, and he knows the very thoughts that are going on in that crowd. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name and when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all. And men is in italics, which means that it's there for clarity, but it's not in the original text. But because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. How would Jesus know what is in man? Well, first, he was God, so he was all-knowing, but also he himself was a man, and he knows what it's like to be a man. And I think that verse speaks again of the humanity and the deity of Christ wrapped up in him. I hope, I'm, hope you stay with me. I'm trying, I know I'm just going through verses and doing that, but there's some really good stuff here when you just piece it together. Uh, Matthew chapter 9 we read of the wickedness of the scribes and the Pharisees and look what it says so he got into a boat crossed over and came to his own city then behold they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed when Jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic son be of good cheer your sins are forgiven you you know only God can forgive sin and the Pharisees knew that and look what happens it says And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, they they didn't say it publicly, they said it within themselves, this man blasphemes. They were disturbed because only God can forgive sins. Look what it says in the next verse. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Can, Can you imagine the Pharisees and the scribes that are there, the scribes all of a sudden, they're saying, this man's speaking blasphemy. Jesus looks right at him and says, why do you think evil in your hearts? If, if you didn't believe he was God before that, maybe you ought to question it now. That's really the point of it. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Listen, he's so much wrapped up in that, those six verses. 
the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, the Son. Uh, you, you see all that, all wrapped up in those things. Luke chapter 9, dispute among the disciples. By the way, do you think Jesus always you know, knows if there's a dispute going on with your friends or your church? Or Yeah, he does. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, he looked right through those disciples and he knew what they were thinking, took a little child and set him by him. John chapter 1. We read of the call of the disciples, remember? And one is Nathaniel. Verse 43 of John 1, it says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I'm not going to just go and start expounding this too much in this text, but you see, Jesus was all-knowing. And also, you see here, by the way, divine sovereignty and human responsibility involved in this whole thing. You have Jesus who sees Nathanael before Nathanael is even called by Philip to go find the Christ. That's the divine sovereignty aspect of God. Do you think God had his eye on you before you got saved? Before you became a follower? Yes, he did. Did he initiate that plan? He sure did. See, he's all-powerful and he does that. But man was still involved. First of all, you have Philip who has to go and call Nathaniel. The work was already beginning already. Then you have Nathaniel who has to go also. That's the will of man. And praise the Lord that Nathaniel and Philip obeyed the will of God and they went. Really, you see, that's wrapped up in the call of God in that. Um, and you see more of that. Anyways, Luke chapter um, 9 with that. And then, uh, where was I here? There we go. John chapter 4, verse 29. <clears throat> he knew the history of the Samaritan woman. Here's a woman. She's at the well earlier in this chapter. And Jesus looks right at her and he tells her everything about her. And the big thing was this. she was with several men and now she's with a man he's not even her husband by the way god sees that and i I can just tell you we live in a society today where marriage is not really even valued and and just people are very casual with their relationships and sexuality and all of that and god still is big on us doing it the right way he is it doesn't mean there isn't forgiveness. There sure is. Amen. You know, there's grace and there's forgiveness. The woman at the well found that. But she down deep knew that she wasn't in a right relationship with her creator. 
And honestly, most people know they're not in a right relationship with their creator when they're doing things their own way. Christ looks right through her. And he tells her that she's a sinner. She already knew that. And you know what it leads her to do? To go tell others, right? Come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? See, he cares enough for us to deal with our sin. We need that. John chapter 6, verse 70. And he knew the true nature of Judas. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. And again, you read in John 13, he identifies Judas there. Um, I, I say that because here, again, a mystery somewhat of the way God does things, but he picks 12 people. He knows one of them is going to betray him. Why would he do that? Because it was part of the will of God and the prophecy of God that needed to be fulfilled. And Judas fulfilled that. And yet he was also not just a pawn in God's scheme. You know, Some people say Judas had no choice. Judas had a choice. But he ends up being the one fulfilling that very thing indeed uh, in, in doing that. We'll move on to this uh, topic here, but we see again the uh, omnipresence of uh, the Lord, omnipotence, and his omniscience. He knew these things. Um, But secondly, um, he was ascribed worship. And that's important because when you go through the Old Testament in particular, worship was designated only for God. And that's important because if you worshipped anything else other than God, it was considered idolatry and blasphemy and actually under the law was worthy of death. Now it wasn't always implemented. There were entire generations of Israelites and others that worshipped uh, other things and they would out, go out in the groves and they would make their idols and their, their altars to pagan gods and do awful things and the Lord wouldn't con- you know, judge them immediately and then eventually judgment would come and they would repent, some of them, and they would follow the Lord for a generation and then go right back to it. But very clearly in Scripture, worship is ascribed only to God or should be only ascribed to God. And that's why in the commandments, you are to have no other gods before me. That's what he says. Jesus is, is, is uh, given worship. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, and firstborn being a term of his preeminence among creation, and he is uh, over creation, and it deals with his resurrection there, that firstborn, it's a title. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. The angels of heaven worship the Son. That's important. By the way, later on, where he says, to which of his angels said he at any time sit at my right hand. He holds an honored position. No angel holds that. Jesus is not an angel. And that goes totally contrary to the false Gnostic gospel or doctrine that was being preached in the day when the New Testament is unfolding as far as in the early church, where some taught that Jesus was just an angel. And there are still people that are out there today. They come knocking on your door. They send you letters in the mail. And they do those kind of things. They may be very nice and sincere people. But they believe that Jesus is Michael, the archangel incarnate. 
and that would be from the Watchtower Society, your, your JWs um, that come. And I've interacted with them many times over, and they will talk about all kinds of things that I could agree on even, some of it. The world we live in is a terrible place, and it needs the Lord. And, you know, they'll say things like that, and I'm like, yeah, that's true. And all. But when you get down to who Jesus is, it's a big difference, and it's a heretical difference because the Bible declares that he is given worship. And by the way, we're not to worship any other gods. And there are no other gods beside me, the Bible says. And in the New World Translation of the Bible, the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, small g-o-d. And that violates the rest of Scripture, because the rest of Scripture says there is no other God. And there are no other gods beside him. And uh, it just shows you can manipulate one text, but you really have a lot of the Bible to fix if you're going to do that, unfortunately. Worship. The word for worship is proskuneo, and it means to worship or to bow down. It carries with the idea of uh, prostrating oneself before another and other thing or in this case the idea of worship ascribing worth to god and it is the word that was chosen by the jews themselves in their septuagint when they translated their old testament scriptures into hebrew from hebrew to greek that is they chose this word and it's a very clear word and jesus is the one who is ascribed that worship matthew chapter 2 verse 1 the christmas story right And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped her. Is that what it says? No. He fell down and worshipped him. It's important too. The very first indication of anybody coming to worship the Christ child, um, well, you have the shepherds that come, but later on when you have the, the idea of worship here, They're worshiping Christ, Christ alone. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How about the leper? Matthew chapter 8, Behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That leper understood more about who was before him than most of the healthy people walking around. And isn't that the case? Jesus said he didn't come to heal those who were uh, healthy, but those who were sick. In other words, spiritually, until you know you need a Savior and you need redemption, you are going to remain in your sin. And the leper who lived with an incurable disease, which was a death sentence in that person, a miserable, horrible way to die, the leper's death, He knew that this was his only hope. And he falls before Christ and says, Lord. And by the way, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for saying, Lord. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. Worshipped him. Proskuneo. Saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. 
And I've got to follow my text here. Heart of a broken woman. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. And he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She was a Gentile. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. The Gentiles worshipping. Look what he says. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Listen, that woman knew where the worth was to be ascribed. And she worshipped the Lord and he heals her little daughter. Wow. And more and more could be said. We've run out of time, but we find uh, other indications of worship. We have the the demon-possessed man at the Gadarenes, right, in the cemetery. He comes and worships him. The man who was born blind, that was John chapter 9. Thomas, doubting Thomas, ascribes worth to him. He says, my Lord and my God. The woman or the women at the empty tomb and, of course, his disciples. And then you have all kinds of different things, other, than, other things, and you, you find that he forgives sin. We already looked at verses with that. He possesses all authority. He is the source of life itself. John chapter 1, right, talks about that in, what is it, verse 4. He is a creator of all things. He is the preserver of all things. He alone can meet all our needs. He receives our prayers. At the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he falls down as he's being stoned to death and he prays. And you know, just before he does that, he sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the glory of God. And he welcomes him into the very presence of heaven. And later he will be our final judge. And that too the Bible is clear on. Anyways, that deals with the deity of Christ, both the humanity and the deity. And when uh, Paul writes there and he says he was born of a woman made under right the law and all that, but he was that son who was given. And we need to understand how that all works. And the doctrinal term is the hypostatic union, that God and man existing in one union in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we are grateful. Grateful for such a Savior. And I pray even tonight, Lord, that as we depart from this place, we would go with a greater love and appreciation for who you are and for the fact that you came into our world and you have not left us to our own devices and our own ways, but you have your heart set upon us on our families and you know everything that's going on at this very moment everywhere thank you you're all powerful and lord this world's a messed up place but yet you're above it and you're in control and we thank you we can know you 
In Jesus' name, amen.